You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I'm going to start this episode by reading from Chapter 5 of Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, the book that I wrote that was released in October of 2019. Chapter 5, Growth or Stability. Peasants in medieval England participated in a common field farming approach that consisted of three great fields. In any given year, the great fields would be designated for wheat or barley or were left fallow in a rotation understood to maintain optimal soil conditions. By foregoing immediate production and giving a field time to recover, overall yields would be more stable and secure. It was a trade-off between short-term productive capacity and long-term stability, with the peasants opting for stability. What is more interesting is how these great fields were subdivided among the peasants. Instead of each having their own contiguous section, each peasant would instead have up to a dozen scattered plots throughout. They would tend to each of these, shunning a consolidation of holdings for an approach that involved burning precious calories walking between plots. A similar approach has been witnessed in modern times in the Andean mountains of Peru. There, the subsistence farmers would likewise scatter their plots over a large area, walking long distances in between to tend to each one. Development experts studying this situation concluded that the Peruvians were paying, quote, an intolerably high cost for all this inefficiency, something more advanced people would not do. Quote, the peasants' cumulative agricultural efficiency is so appalling that our amazement is how these people even survive at all. The expert recommendation was to create a land swapping program so these seemingly uneducated backward peasants could consolidate their holdings and, through improved efficiencies, realize more of the fruits of their own labor. This was reported in a journal article by researcher Carol Golan, who, with a level of humility not seen in the development experts, sought to understand why peasants would scatter their plots in this way. What she discovered by asking, and then confirmed through measurement and calculation, was that the spreading of plots is a risk management strategy. In any given year, one plot may be randomly wiped out. Having enough plots and having them spread out ensured the peasant family wouldn't starve. What the efficiency-obsessed development experts didn't appreciate was how fragile their consolidation strategy would make life for the peasant farmers. Instead of being ignorant, the peasants understood a spooky wisdom insights gained over many lifetimes of trial and error experimentation. The farmers who didn't scatter their plots died. Those who didn't have enough plots also died. The farmers who survived had lots of scattered plots, a strategy for survival they passed on as traditional wisdom. The development experts were trying to meet a single objective, increased efficiency, while the peasants were forced to harmonize many competing objectives in an infinite game one where survival was the ultimate constraint. I appreciate you letting me take the beginning of this podcast and read that part because I, I was thinking about that when I got off the call 
with Alison Schrager, the economist we had on last week in the podcast. And just how there's this breakdown when it comes to assessing risk. And I'm just going to say, for lack of a, a better way to talk about it, I'm going to use Chris Arnotti's language of front row and back row. The way front row and back row people tend to view risk and tend to take risk into account. The peasants in chapter five of my book have no fallback position. Uh, they don't have a safety net. They don't have a fallback. They basically have to make sure that every year they have a subsistence level and they can't go below that. They can't essentially reach for upside risk uh, or upside yield if they are going to threaten that downside risk, because eventually you go out long enough in time, that trade-off is not going to work. At some point, if you're playing Russian roulette, even if the gains on the empty chambers are really great, sometime you're going to hit that full chamber and then the game is over. Uh, if you're playing an infinite game, if you're trying to be around, that's not an option. And in fact, one of the insights of the book and one of the insights that I, I hope people took away from it is that you know, we are in an infinite game. We are in you know, humanity, civilization. I, I think our cities, at least the way I look at my city and my place, I want it to endure. I, I want it to be here long after me. I feel like I have inherited a framework, a wealth, a success, a stability. I inherited that. That's part of the legacy that our ancestors left to us with our cities. And I want to pass that on. I, I don't want to blow that up. I, I'm not willing to reach for higher yields. I'm not willing to reach for greater efficiency. If the cost of that means that, you know, the pass fail of me going on to the future is it all compromised. Traditional cities developed and, and grew the way they did, this incremental framework that we talk about a lot at Strong Towns, because that framework provides an enormous amount of upside potential with very limited downside risk. I like to think of this as a plateau of wealth and prosperity. You know, you, you start out with a bare minimum level, you know, the collection of pop-up shacks I talk about a lot. And then if you can grow that incrementally, you reach a, another plateau. And the idea is, is that that transition from one plateau to the other, that kind of phase shift from a very kind of humble, just barely hanging on remote civilization to something with a little bit more prosperity it is one of those kind of winnowing type of cycles. You know, it's, it's, it's a pass fail. Like, are you going to make it or not? And a lot of them don't make it, but if you can make it to that first plateau, the odds of you not making it then become a lot less. You've actually crossed a threshold of strength and resiliency and wealth creation that allows you to endure. And of course, if you can reach another plateau, another plateau, another plateau, you become one of these, you know, uh, cities that last thousands and thousands of years, passing on stability, prosperity, wealth to subsequent generations. That is essentially what our habitat is designed to do. In the 20th century, I'm gonna use the word progressive I mean it in the early 20th century, not in the current modern political dialogue. Early 20th century progressives and the progressive movement felt that we could make 
things better. We, we could, because of our national strength, because of our national economy, because of the capacities that we had as a nation, we could get cities out of or, or get humans who live in cities uh, with cities being their habitat. We could move them out of that kind of fragile, tenuous, uh, you have to hedge everything. You have to make sure that you're not playing Russian roulette, that you have a backup, that, that you can, in a sense, take your spare resources and use them to shore things up. We said, you know what? We think humans can live uh, more prosperous lives than that. And so if we work collectively, we can, in a sense, offset that. We we can take care of that. We can allow humans in their habitat to not have to worry about the things that humans have worried about for thousands of years. Can I feed my family? Is my place going to survive? Will, will we have the money to do the basic things that we need to do? You know, will we be able to put out fires when they happen? Will we be able to uh, bury our dead? Will we be able to get and trade goods from surrounding communities? The, the, these were all things that we worried about at the local level with human habitat. And we said, you know, there's a, there's a base level of worry there's a base level of concern that we take resources and work on. We can free up those resources if we have, in a sense, a safety net that we've created. Let me just be clear, because I, I use the word progressive and I, I tried to hedge it by saying I'm not talking about modern politics, but let me just say, I get why this happened. And I think this makes a lot of sense. And I'm not even going to argue that we shouldn't have done these things. I think of the 2008 housing crisis and the core insight that caused that crisis with that housing around the nation was uncorrelated. That what happened in the markets of Florida were going to be different than what happened in the markets of Minnesota. And what happened in Minnesota was going to be different than the market in California. What happened in California would be different than the markets in uh, Maine. And so if you bought a portfolio that was broadly diversified, if you had houses in Minnesota and Florida and California and Maine, they weren't all going to go bad at the same time. They were, they were not correlated. That was the theory anyway going in. And what we learned in 2008 was that they were perfectly correlated. I've talked about this in the past on how uh, centralizing our markets, centralizing our systems has made us 100% correlated. Well, if, if we went back to the early 1900s, what we could say with confidence is that the local market in central Minnesota, where I live, could be hedged in a sense we could take on more risk if we had a fallback position where the local markets in New York City could bail us out if things went wrong, or the markets in California could bail out Maine, or the markets in Florida could bail out Texas. In other words, our cities were not perfectly correlated. Our human habitat was very localized, very well adapted to the place. But we could, by creating this uh, national strength, this national capacity to to help out and to do things and to alleviate local distress. We could create a condition where, because we were not correlated, we could help each other out. We could bail each other out. This is essentially the foundation of the New Deal economy and the idea behind the New Deal. You know, you, you go back to the Dust Bowl and places like, you know, Oklahoma, Kansas, the central part of the country were really, really hard hit. If you go to a place like California, you know, while the Great Depression was really difficult, I'm not pretending it's not, 
uh, these places did relatively well, you know, in comparison. I write about in my book how Detroit did really well, comparatively speaking, during the Great Depression. You know, we we think of the Great Depression as being these long bread lines and, uh, you know, people jumping out of buildings when the stock market crashes and and despair and poverty. And there was that. Yes, absolutely. But there were also pockets of places that did pretty well. What we said as a country is that, you know what, we can take from the places that are doing well, and we can use that to, in a sense, help the places that are struggling. Uh, this is a very human thing to do. And, and, and by doing that, not only can we help people who are in distress, I think some people argue with me on cause and effect, you know, the, the we induce moral hazard or do, or do we just, I don't think we induced moral hazard as much as we embraced the idea that these places were going to do differently, we're going to proceed differently. Our habitats were not 100% correlated. Our cities were not 100% correlated. And so as a national economy, we could do things to help people and help places that we couldn't do on our own. This would free up capacity. This would free up people to not worry, in a sense, about their own situation being tenuous. And it would allow us as a macro economy, as a national economy, uh, to grow, to create jobs, to build a greater prosperity for people. The whole idea of Keynesian economics, you know, that was, uh, I'll say, half-heartedly embraced in the 1930s and 1940s, and, and largely because it was politically, you know, very controversial, this transition from a national let me just use the, the libertarian talking points. You know, a national economy that was, where the federal government was 2% or 3% of GDP to one where it's now taxes at a little over 20% and spends around 30%. Last year, it was, it was even greater than that because of uh, the depression that we're in now. You know, federal government spending was, I want to say like 40% of GDP. It was a massive amount of money. That transition was very controversial. And in the New Deal, in the 1930s and the 1940s and, and transition in the 1950s, this was a, a very controversial type thing. It took, it took a depression, it took a world war, and it took a consensus coming out of war to, to change that. But the key insight of Keynes was that the federal government or the, the monetary authority or the treasury, in times of crisis, could step in and be the bridge, be the buffer, be the one that bailed out uh, people who were in difficult times, who, who helped people out, who, you know, for no fault of their own, or, or maybe for fault of their own, but, you know, we're good, decent people. We don't want people to suffer. We would go in and take care of them. And so the, the peasants who had to have eight different plots, because if, you know, if in a bad year, five of the plots failed, uh, they were spread out enough to where three of them would make it. And while that would be a really tough year, one that you would hate to have lived through, at least you would have lived through it. Now we could say, you know what? You, you don't need those eight spread out plots. Let's consolidate your plots. You can grow more. You can grow more quickly. But yes, you've got a more tenuous situation. It's more diff If things go bad, you will starve. And so what we can do is we can step in as a larger entity, as a federal system, as a uh, collection of states uh, working together through the federal government, we can step in and say, take that risk. We're all going to be better off if you produce uh, more, if you are more efficient, if you do better, and we will be the backup for you. We will essentially be there to take care of you. So take that risk. 
because we're all going to be better off. And by the way, we're not 100% correlated. If Minnesota has a tough time, Florida's not going to have a tough time. If Texas has a tough time, uh, Wyoming will not be having a tough time. We can work together and make this work. We're a great nation. And the insight of Keynes was in these depressions, in these downturns, the federal government could step in and assume this role. The other side of Keynes, and I had Tomas Sedlacek on a couple of years ago, the podcast. Tomas Sedlacek is my, my favorite economist. Economics is, you know, a lot like religion today. It, the mix up between politics and philosophy and economics. Uh, economists like to think of themselves like physicists. They like to think of themselves like like chemists or mathematicians, but but they really, it's a political science, right? We We bring our priors, we bring our beliefs, the economist whose beliefs I value the most is, is Tomas Sedlacek. He wrote uh, The Economics of Good and Evil. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Tomas Sedlacek uh, was the first one that I heard talk about the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, Joseph and Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a dream. Uh, Pharaoh dreamed that there were eight uh, fat cows uh, who you know, were living large. Did I say eight? Seven. Seven cows. And then in the dream, there were seven emaciated cows, basically cows that uh, were sickly and, and, and thin. And the seven thin cows ate the seven fat cows, the healthy cows, and uh, they stayed emaciated. They stayed sickly. Uh, in the dream, Pharaoh saw seven pieces of wheat uh, that were full and hearty, and then seven pieces of wheat that were sickly and, and not doing well. And the, the seven bad pieces of wheat devoured the seven good pieces of wheat and remained, you know, in a sickly state. Uh, they summoned Joseph because no one could explain this to Pharaoh and said, you know, Joseph, you have shown in the past to be good at interpreting dreams. God is with you. Tell us what this dream means. And Joseph says, Pharaoh, you have had humanity's first macroeconomic forecast given to you by God. God has said, you will have seven years of plenty, and then you will have seven years of want. You'll have seven years of famine. You're going to have seven years where things are going to go really well, and you're going to have a lot of surplus, and then you're going to have seven years where things are really, really difficult. You know what you need to do? You need to, in the seven years that you produce excess, do not consume everything that you produce. Set some aside. So that when you get to the seven bad years, the seven lean years, you can consume the excess from the first seven and you will survive. You will be okay. You will be able to take care of people. Uh, Tomas Sedlacek calls this the, the first recorded macroeconomic forecast. And I, I like that idea because it does capture, in a sense, the insight of Keynes. Keynes's insight is you can run deficits now in this time of crisis provided you run surpluses in times of plenty. You can go and bail out people now. You can take care of people. You can be that difference maker. You can allow all of those people to not have to have eight spread out plots. And they can run, in a sense, a little more risky uh, scenario than they otherwise would uh, because uh, the federal government's here to back them up. Society as a whole, we will all together in our uncorrelated way help each other out when we have difficult times. But then when we have good times, we will save. We will save for those uh, difficult times. Um, this was Keynes. Of course, 
we've moved beyond Keynes. And it, when you go through the rest of chapter five in my book, I, I try to walk through this mindset shift where we went from, yes, these insights help us uh, alleviate the worst of the depression to, wow, these insights also help us grow very, very quickly during good times. In fact, it's not enough to say during the seven fat years, uh, you know, we will save so that we have money during the seven lean years. Uh, what we actually say now is in the seven uh, plenty years, we should actually do more and create even more growth and more surplus because these tools that we use uh, to, in a sense, fight downturn uh, can be used to really, really rev up things in the good times. And we're going to be way better off if we just have a way bigger pie going into the tough times as opposed to have uh, savings. That's how our economy has, in a sense, evolved. And, and really, we are in an age right now, and I, I think we have been for you know, maybe three decades now, since the end of the Cold War, really, since since the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II uh, in the 1970s, and then this period of debt expansion that we've really been on since the early 1980s, we are creating a new style of economics. I know there's a lot of people who believe they know what this is about. I believe there's a lot of people who you know, are very confident that they understand what is going on. I always look at confidence as being the tell, right? If you're, if you're really confident that you know what's going to happen on something that, first of all, has never been tried before, and second of all, is a massive, complex, you know, emergent system, uh, to me, you are a fool, right? I, like that, to me, that's a person that I just implicitly don't trust, regardless of whether I maybe agree with their underlying notions or not. This is why we're talking... <laughs> today about risk, right? In Nassim Taleb's writing, he talks about restaurants and how restaurants are themselves individually one of the most fragile types of businesses that people get into. The restaurant business has very low margins, has very high volatility. One thing we've seen in the, uh, the pandemic is that a lot of restaurants have been wiped out because they don't have a lot of operating cash. They don't have a lot of reserves. They tend to have a lot of debt. They, they are very dependent on, you know, seasonality and weather and, you know, all, all, all these things that, that make them really difficult. It's interesting because this is true in places with a lot of prosperity and this is true in places with not much prosperity. You know, if you go to a, a booming restaurant in New York and you go in and you're in New York City and this restaurant looks great and it's uh, going really well. Uh, and then you go back a few months later and it's out of business and you're like, what, what the heck happened here? And you find out that, you know, they couldn't make the rent, right? Because the rent is really, really high because there's a lot of foot traffic there. And so, yeah, they were able to bring a lot of people through, but the restaurant itself was, was rather tenuous, you know, because of the finances of the situation. You, you can go to a tiny, small town and, uh, you know, there'll be a restaurant there and a little diner and there won't feel like there's anybody there. But, you know, they eke out a living uh, because they serve the handful of people that are there and they, you know, have very low rent or very low costs or what have you. Restaurants individually as entities are really, really fragile. Yet, how difficult is it to find a restaurant? You know, during COVID, it's difficult in some parts of the country, although, you know, everybody's figured out how to do takeout and that kind of thing, right? 
How difficult is it to find a restaurant? You can always find a restaurant. And why is that? It's because the ecosystem of restaurants is really strong. We allow individual restaurants to fail and fail frequently because they create what is a very strong and very robust ecosystem for restaurants. There are always going to be restaurants being started. There's always going to be restaurants going out of business. There's always going to be evolution in that. But nobody really worries that in any given town, they're not going to be able to go out to eat. They're not going to be able to go and, you know, find a cup of coffee or, or find a place to uh, have some eggs and some pancakes or find a place to have a burger. Like it's, it's not going to happen. We're, we're, we're confident that it will be there. And we're confident that it will be there despite the fragility of restaurants themselves. This is what Taleb calls an anti-fragile system, right? The, the fragility of the individual restaurants creates an anti-fragility of the ecosystem of restaurants. I point this out because there's, there's a relationship there. We've talked about this at Strong Towns in the past, and I've written extensively about this. You know, in, in cities, we have to have a conversation about what is fragile and what is not. What we allow to fail and what we preserve at all costs. And I have argued that it's neighborhoods that are fragile. Whether we like it to or not in the current system we've created, if we go back to traditional development patterns, um, what you had was the new startup neighborhoods out on the edge of town would be very fragile. Those were the pop-up shacks. Those were the places that were kind of the upstart. In the middle of the community, you would have your strength and stability. And the further you got out towards the edge, the more fragile things would become. And you were okay with these places going away. There might be some bad bets people make out on the edge and their little pop-up shacks and their little starter neighborhoods. Um, but there wasn't much invested, and so there wasn't going to be much lost, and the city hadn't put infrastructure out there yet. So, you know, you you wait to see what happens, and you let these places mature. They're little bets. So we would accept that level of fragility and that level of failure the same way you accept the level of failure in the restaurant business, because what it does is it strengthens the overall ecosystem. Restaurants failing and starting and failing and starting creates a very strong restaurant ecosystem. Neighborhoods out on the edge in the traditional city, uh, starting and failing and starting and failing would create a very robust and anti-fragile and strong ecosystem, which was our human habitat. Where today is that fragility? Where today is that strength? And it is part of you know this covenant we've made with ourselves uh, in the last century that we would take care of these places, and then that covenant switching to we would grow these places to help us all, right? To increase our macro strength. It was this covenant that you know has put us in a position where uh, we have insolvent cities, where we have lots of places that are fragile. I have had this conversation about like, what would we have to let go? And I have argued, a la Detroit, that we are going to be forced to let go of many neighborhoods and that we can think of this through a triage lens as a way to uh, kind of help neighborhoods evolve, adapt, and uh, you know, compassionately uh, move on to the, the next stage, which I think for many of these places will be failure and, and, and going away. What that conversation is, and it's a tough conversation, it's a difficult one, I'm not pretending it's not, um, but what that conversation is, is an awareness and acceptance that what is the thing we don't want to give up 
the restaurant ecosystem, right? We'll give up individual restaurants because we want the restaurant ecosystem. We'll give up individual neighborhoods because we need the city to be strong. We need the city to be stable. We need the city to be there. There's a trade-off is what I'm suggesting between uh, if you want a system that is strong, if you want a system that is healthy, you have to have uh, some internal components that are very fragile. That, that's the way that strength comes about. When we look at the relationship between cities and the federal government, cities and state governments, if we look at it from a city standpoint, uh, I think there's an assumption here. There's a, a, a tacit kind of understanding that the federal government is going to be there for us, that the state governments are going to be there for us, that our housing prices are not going to be allowed to collapse. Our commercial tax base is not going to be allowed to implode. Our roads won't be allowed to fall apart. Our, our sewer systems uh, won't be allowed to fail. Our, our water systems won't be allowed to go bad. Our garbage collection, our, you know, let, let's go down the whole list. N none of those things will be allowed to happen because the state governments, the federal governments will not allow it to happen. They will take care of those things. I'm not suggesting, and, and I think we could go there, I think we could have this conversation, but I'm, I'm not, for the sake of what we're talking about here, I'm not suggesting that this has allowed cities you know, to be reckless, like cities just stand up and say, well, we're just gonna build this because we don't care. Uh, if anything, I'm suggesting that we have just evolved to not worry about this. It's a little bit like going back to the peasants where you know, they would have to have eight different plots spread around because if you didn't do that, uh, you stood the risk of not making it. But after a certain number of years of having plenty and having, you know, this kind of overseer bail you out if things didn't go well, and, uh, you know, having a, a larger system take care of you, now, you know, in the U.S., we don't have farmers working in eight plots. We don't, we don't worry about this. If food doesn't grow in Minnesota, we'll import it from Iowa. If food doesn't grow in Iowa, we'll import it from, uh, you know, Missouri. Like, we'll, we'll get it from somewhere. We're, we're in this big system. We don't, we don't worry about those things anymore. And so at the local level, what we don't worry about is who's going to take care of all this stuff? How, how is this all going to work? How, how are we going to meet these promises that we have? We, we don't worry about these things, and we don't worry about them not because we're bad people, not because we're trying to exploit a loophole in the system, not because we're nefarious, but we, we don't worry about them because they've not been something we've ever had to worry about, at least not in any of our lifetimes. When you look at it from a city standpoint, uh, what you feel like is that you have a partner at the federal level, you have a partner at the state level that ultimately is not going to let you fail is going to be there to take care of things and is not going to let you fail. So there's no need to have eight plots scattered over, right? You can go ahead and consolidate, go ahead and be efficient, go ahead and do the prudent thing that they want you to do because they're gonna be there if you have a bad crop failure. I wanna stop and look at this from the federal government level and the state government level. I don't think there's the reciprocal understanding not only is it, you know, not an entity that, you know, acts in one mind, right? Not that our communities are entities that act in one mind, but 
you know, the federal government is not a monolithic, predictable kind of thing, right? It's, a, it's the byproduct of a, a very complex emergent system of voters and preferences and lobbyists and, you know, media and what have you. If you take it at its base, I think there's more of a, I think, restaurant to restaurant ecosystem relationship then even people at that level would want to believe. I think there's a certain number of people who believe that, yes, you know, the federal government's role is to bail out cities and is to bail out people that are in difficulty and is to kind of step in and take care of things. You know, go ahead, local government, and do the things that you're going to do because we will be here if things don't work out. Go ahead and buy that fire truck. Go ahead and, and take on that debt to put in that, that new uh, water tower. Go ahead and float that bond for that new subdivision. You know, if it doesn't work out, we're not going to let you fail. We're going to be here. We're going to take care of things. And I think there's a certain number of people who look at things that way. I think there's also a recognition that the strength of the macro economy or the strength of the federal economy the strength of the federal government as derived from the, the cities and the states is a little bit more like the restaurant business. Some will succeed, some will fail. Some will do well, some will not. Some will prosper, some will deeply struggle. And, you know, that is what allows us to be strong. That is that diversity, that fragility in the restaurants as individuals allows the restaurant ecosystem to be strong. The fragility, the different experiences among cities and states and, and localities and their disparities, cities that are doing well, cities that are struggling, uh, neighborhoods that are doing well, neighborhoods that are in poverty. This diversity of, of outcomes is what allows the organism to be strong and allows the macroeconomy to have a certain level of stability. I was struck a little bit last week when I spoke with Alison Schrager, it seemed like in many ways we agreed on a lot of things. And, and I, you know, certainly in reading her stuff, found a lot that I agreed with. I struggle a little bit when it comes to the faith that many, I will say this right off the bat, I tend to be conservative, especially when it comes to economics. I don't know as from a, <laughs> from a macroeconomic standpoint, uh, the libertarians would really want me. I certainly feel libertarian at the federal level, but I look at our current system and I don't see anything really libertarian about it. I don't see bailouts and I don't see uh, Federal Reserve manipulation of interest rates and I don't see you know, huge massive infrastructure programs that create uh, this very uneven playing field. I don't see these things as being free market, you know, reflections of the market. I don't look at our system and see the outcomes. I'll give you what I think is the most radical one. Randall O'Toole and others like him essentially equate driving with freedom. If you can get in a car, you can go wherever you want, whenever you want, aka freedom. Therefore, any federal policy that promotes automobile driving is, in a sense, promoting freedom. 
And you just kind of take all the derivations from that and, and overlook what really is a massive distortion of the market favoring the automobile and automobile style of development, automobile style of investment, automobile style of business, everything from big box stores to Amazon to what have you, this whole like chain of economics that comes out of this belief that the automobile equals freedom, ergo, everything that supports the automobile is an expression of the market. I find this to be insane. And people who call themselves libertarian and believe that, which I have found to be a wide percentage of people who call themselves libertarians, I just stand in bafflement of. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand it. That doesn't make any sense to me. There was a, a really good article by Noah Smith He's got his own Substack now. I don't really know where he used to write for. It doesn't matter. He's on Twitter as Noah Pinion, which is where I've come to know him. There's a lot of people who quote him and send his stuff to me. I'm not offering any reviews with this, but I, I do think that the question that he poses in his January 21st piece is an important one. He, the title of the piece is, No One Knows How Much the Government Can Borrow, and the sub title is perhaps macroeconomists should think about studying this interesting question. And I'm like, yeah, no S Sherlock, right? Let me read the first couple paragraphs here because I think it's really good. I think it's well-written. Here's what Noah Smith says. One of the most important questions in macroeconomics is one that economists have curiously chosen not to study. That question is how much can the government safely borrow? In fact, no one knows the answer to this question. And because no one knows the answer to this question, no one even knows if this is a particularly important question to be asking right now. You might think that with the U.S. federal debt having surged to over 125% of GDP as a result of COVID relief spending, up from around 60% of GDP before the 2008 financial crisis, it might be time to think about borrowing constraints. And you might think that with Biden planning far more deficit spending in the coming years, it might be time to think about borrowing constraints. But in fact, we don't actually know if it's time to think about borrowing constraints. It might be that we're heading into a danger zone, or it might be that the danger zone is still so far away that we could go on like this for decades and not run into any problems. Many people will tell you very confidently that they know the answer to this question, but don't believe them. Our lack of knowledge about borrowing constraints represents a deep, profound ignorance. And that ignorance means that unless we actually find those limits the hard way, the policy debate over deficits in the coming years will rest completely on people's priors, assumptions, and ideologies, which is not a good place for us to be. This is what I have found. I found that our conversation about macroeconomics, as I said earlier, is, is more akin to politics than physics. Macroeconomics is more about our priors, our assumptions, our ideologies than it is, you know, about the equations of macroeconomics. There is no E equals MC squared. There is no F equals MA. There is no base insights like the uh, laws of thermodynamics. There's nothing like that in economics that can be used to predict, you know, the outcomes with any type of specificity. We, we don't know. We don't know. I don't want to pretend that we do. I certainly have my own priors. 
I certainly have my own assumptions. I certainly have my own ideologies. I think all of you do as well. I hear from you often. I have one guy who has been writing me back and forth about modern monetary theory and how I've got it completely wrong. And uh, he's very, very confident about the future and how much we can borrow and his thing's going to be no problems. And okay, fine. That's okay. Like I, you may believe that you may be very confident in that. Here's what I want us to recognize. And I guess here's what I want us to struggle with. The reality is that we don't know. What we do know, and, and this is what Noah Smith's article does a really good job of illuminating. We do know that at some point, there's a limit to how much we can borrow. Even the modern monetary theorists will tell you that there is a limit to how much we can borrow. Uh, we couldn't borrow a gazillion trillion dollars and give everybody a billion dollars tomorrow and, and have everything be just fine. Like we couldn't do that. You know, like we recognize that there is a limit. The central question is like, well, that limit is not going to hit us tomorrow and that limit's not going to hit us next year. And that limit is not going to hit us in the next decade. And it's not going to hit us in the next two decades or what, whatever your belief system is to be going on. And let me just note, <laughs> I saw this really interesting article about how now Republicans are starting to care about deficits again. I, quite frankly, don't care about Democrats and I don't care about Republicans. I'm done. I've been long done with both of them. Like, I don't care. I'm sure that Republicans will now start caring about deficits again. They didn't for four years. Okay, now they will again. I don't care. Like, it doesn't matter to me. If it matters to you, there's plenty of politics blogs you can go listen to, politics podcasts you can tune into. Like, go deal with them. Like, I don't care. I don't care. Yes, they're all hypocrites. <laughs> okay. Like, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm not standing up for any of them. I think the question that we have to struggle with, as people who want to see our cities be successful, and this is really the question that I have been struggling with since I started Strong Towns. Uh, it's one of the premises of why I started asking the questions that I did at the local level. How stable is our partner? If we have this tacit understanding that you know, we don't have to have eight plots. We can consolidate our plots. We can uh, go for broke. We can uh, make risky bets. We can strive for greater efficiencies because you know what? We don't have to have slack in our system. We don't have to have backup. We don't have to have added extra capacity. We don't have to worry about these things because someone is there to bail us out. Someone will be there to take care of us. We don't have to worry at the local level about how much we borrow. We don't have to worry about how much infrastructure we take on. We don't have to worry about the promises we make to people. We don't have to worry about those things because there's this larger system that will take care of things if things go poorly. If we believe that, we have to ask the question, how stable is that system? How reliable is that partner that's gonna be there for us when things are bad. I got to this with Allison Schrager, and we agreed on this point, um, but we agreed on it in one dimension. And, and I wanna lay it out in two dimensions here, because I, I think there's two insights that we have to kind of coalesce around and acknowledge. The first one is that we can't say the market will bail this out. The market is the thing that is going to fix this. We can't just fall back and, and rely on things 
and, and I'm really talking to the people who, you know, are kind of reflexively pro-market people. You can't look at the markets today, no matter how you define it and say, this is a rational system. This is working. Just in a stock market sense, we are in places that are so insane. And I'm not even talking about valuations. I'm talking about the fact that in reality right now, not only do fundamentals not matter, but stock prices, bond prices don't matter. In a sense, the whole market is being driven by options, by derivatives. It's almost like not only is the tail wagging the dog, but the tail is like a thousand times bigger than the dog. I follow the stock market close enough to recognize that, let me put it this way, three decades ago, two decades ago, you could look at changes in stock prices. You could look at changes over time, over a six-month period of time, a 12-month period of time. And, and you could tie that back to fundamentals happening in an industry, fundamentals happening in a company. You could look at their balance sheet. You could look at their debt. You could, you could see that. And the options market, the derivatives market, people who were since making bets on the directions of stocks, they were secondary players. Yes, they were big enough to take down whole markets. We had you know, things happening in the 90s along around long-term capital management. We had uh, different hedge funds that would blow up and threaten the entire market system uh, with the bets that they had. There was always a sense that, you know, they were at the mercy of the market, which would be expressed in, in stock prices, which, you know, were expressions of the real marketplace, what people would buy and sell and what consumers wanted and what demand there were for products and profitability and, and what have you. If you look at the system today, not only is it hard to make that case, I mean, you can look at the fundamentals and just recognize, and I, a lot of people have said this, I'm not saying anything uh, deeply insightful here, you know, the, the, the idea that the stock market is unhinged or that the stock market represents anything real about the economy. It, it is not, and it is not for a long time. And we, we have grown, you know, there's a couple interesting metrics. Uh, you know, you look at like Apple, Apple stock is up something, I can't even say, hundreds and hundreds of percents, 400%, 500%, something like that. In the last four or five years, its earnings have grown by 2%. What is signaling to you that earnings is going to start shooting up? It doesn't make any sense. The stock market since 2008 or since 2010 uh, has grown you know, many, many multiples, uh, very, very high percentage. It's completely disconnected from the underlying GDP, which has grown at anemic rates. Why? Who knows? You know, like it, it, this is something that people understand is, is uncorrelated. But what is fascinating, I think, today is how many people you hear talking about how these secondary markets, you know, they used to be called the black markets, you know, like the trading that would happen that wasn't on official exchanges. And uh, there were all these warning calls like, you know, this is this is five times or 10 times or 50 times the size of the, uh, the regular market. But now you get over and over again how the action in options markets and derivatives markets and basically like bets on bets, that that's actually what is driving stock prices. It's the ultimate of like the tail wagging the dog. It really is. I want people who believe in the market and if you're here with Strong Towns, you believe in cities, 
you believe that, you know, collectively we need our cities to be strong. We need them to be successful. We need them to be, you know, financially uh, solvent. We need them to be a sense like the base in which we build the strength of our economy on. You have to recognize that the market is not going to save us today. It, it is a huge part of the problem. The distortions in the market, what we have allowed to become the market is a big part of this problem. And not only is it a part of the problem because of its volatility or, you know, instability, future instability, it's a problem because it's crowded out the sources of stability that we need at the local level. If, if you are willing to have your city be less than stable, less than solvent, we're not going to have our eight plots, right? We're, we're going to consolidate. We're going to go for efficiency. If you're willing to do that under the guise that the market will be the strength, you're worshiping a false god now today. The thing that you considered a strength is actually an enormous weakness. Let me take this the next step then. And I think this is where, you know, the modern progressives, the, the modern progressive thinkers are running into difficulty as well, or should be running into difficulty. If you expect the federal government to be there to bail out cities and bail out states and bail out individuals and localities and places that are struggling, then you have to be obsessed with the strength and the stability of the federal government. That has to be a core obsession that you have. If your strategy is the restaurant strategy, that all these places will fail and we're okay with them failing because that will, in a sense, make the federal government strong. Okay, I don't agree with that. Like, I don't like that approach, but at least like that is a viable strategy. You know, we'll sacrifice cities in upstate New York uh, because it will, you know, make Florida strong. We'll sacrifice parts of Southern California because it will make Minnesota better off. You know, okay. Like, I, like if that's your point of view, but I've never met a progressive who believes that. What I've met is a progressive who says, we need to go and we need to help upstate New York and we need to help Central California and we need to help Minnesota and Florida and we need to be there and be the backup and help these places. Okay. If that is your theory, then you're the opposite of Nassim Taleb's restaurant. What you're saying is that you are the reinsurance. You are the insurance for these localities. Then you need to act like an insurance. We need to become incredibly conservative about the way we balance, the way we take care of the federal budget. If the idea is that the federal government is going to help everyone, the federal government is going to take care of everything, then the federal government needs to be unquestionably financially strong. It needs to be in a financial position that is beyond question. That doesn't sit right with anybody today. I just called the last four years of Republicans hypocrites if they start complaining about deficits today. I have complained about deficits for the last four years. We need to, you know, look at that system and say, okay, no one knows how much the federal government can borrow, right? It may be that we can go on for another year like this. It may be another decade. It may be another 50 years. Nobody knows. But the reality is, is that nobody knows. The reality is that we're doing all kinds of crazy things that have never been done before. 
And we're not doing it from a position of strength. We're doing it from a position of weakness. We're doing it from a position of almost panic. We're going to continue to do things from a position of panic at the federal government level because I sense and I feel, and this could be my priors and my assumptions and my ideologies speaking for me, but I feel like time is bearing this out. We're going to keep trying all kinds of crazy stuff because we don't seem to have any answers. What this means for us, and this is what I really want to leave everybody with, and this was what I was kind of hoping we would get to with the Allison Schrager podcast, and I, I don't feel like we got there, but I, I want to leave everybody with this now. When you look at the market and you see the suppressed volatility, you see this craziness, you see this stuff going on, the tail wagging the dog, and you're like, this is, this is nuts. Like, I do not trust this. And you look at the federal government, and not only is it far, far from being beyond reproach, not only is the financial strength you know, not unquestionable, right? but it is very tenuous. We can look at it and we can say, all right, we can argue and disagree over how far you know, down this trail we can go, but no one really knows where the cliff is. No one really knows where things blow up. No one really knows where this goes bad. But we know that if we keep going down this path, it eventually will. That is a very tenuous situation as well. And so at the local level, we have to question our priors. We have to question our core assumptions. And the one that we need to question the most is that someone's going to be there to bail us out. The market's not going to bail us out. The federal government cannot be relied on to bail us out. The state governments cannot be relied on to bail us out. And I'm not talking about you know, how you're going to pay your pension or how you're going to pave your streets. I'm talking about how you're going to have clean water. I'm talking about how you're going to take care of your sewage, take care of your garbage. How are you going to keep your streets from flooding? I'm talking about how you're going to actually stay connected to the outside world. This sounds a little bit like end of times, right? But look at this. In 2008, we said, We can make these huge bets on housing because the housing market is completely uncorrelated. What goes on in California is different than what goes on in New York. What goes on in Texas is different than what happens in Minnesota. And we woke up one day and we said, you know what? The housing market is 100% correlated. They're all the same. And failure in one means failure in the entire system. And if we don't spend a trillion dollars tomorrow of money we don't have, which we don't, you know, give it to banks and do all this stuff, there's not going to be food on the shelves in 48 hours. The one thing that we know today is that our cities are 100% correlated. They are all the same. They all have the same ordinances. They all have the same zoning codes. They all have the same building codes. The houses are all financed with the same instruments. The commercial properties are all financed in the same way. The streets have the same standards. The roads have the same standards. The interchanges are built the same. The signs are the same. The way they're insured is the same. The way we talk about them is the same. I've traveled all over this country. Our cities are 100% correlated. When one fails, they all fail in the same exact way. And we can already look around and see cities that are further down the path than ours are that are having difficulty, that are having struggles, that are experiencing failure and experiencing distress. Now, do that at a broader scale. And do that without a partner there to bail you out. 
I want everyone listening to understand the nature of the risk that we're taking. That we are walking blind down this path. And in many ways, I've just accepted this idea that this partner of ours, the states, the federal government, the markets, they're going to be there to bail us out. They're going to be strong and they're going to be healthy and they're going to be there to bail us out. Guess what? They're assuming the same thing about us. They're assuming that, you know, much like the restaurant ecosystem is healthy because many restaurants fail. At the end of the day, when their health is threatened, uh, they're going to look at us and say, you know what? Some of these places have to fail and go away so that we can be strong. I don't want it to be you. I don't want it to be your place. I want you to start doing what you can to start building a strong town, to start building a community of people that are uh, doing the math, that are working incrementally, that are starting to, to build up some best practices. I don't know if they're going to need us this year. I don't know if they're going to need us five years from now. I don't know if they're going to need us 10 years from now. But whether it's tomorrow or whether it's next month or whether it's a decade from now, we need to start building these practices now. They will make us stronger. They will make us better off. They will improve our prosperity. There is no downside to using a strong town's approach. If we can start to create uh, these practices within our communities, we can start to build this movement in our place. If we can share these ideas with others, start talking about them, start building our local coalitions of people, we can be the difference makers when we're needed. We can be ready to step up. I think we are a lot more like the peasants than we ever want to ponder or believe. And I'm not a crazy prepper. Like I don't have, you know, rounds of ammunition in my basement and I, I don't have, you know, two years of food stockpiled. I don't do those things. I don't think like tomorrow, you know, the black death is going to descend upon us. But I do step back and I recognize that what we have built in our cities is really, really fragile, is incredibly insolvent, and is reliant on a partner that is far from reliable, a partner that will, when stressed, walk away from us and abandon us. So let's not let it happen. Let's be strong. Let's keep doing what we can to build a strong town. Thanks, everybody. Wanted to clarify that. Hey, next week, we've got an amazing podcast coming for you. The week after, we've got an amazing podcast coming for you. If you haven't signed up for the Local Motive Tour, it's kicks off this week. Uh, make sure you get signed up. Go to strongtowns.org forward slash local dash motive. We've got 10 courses there on how to build a strong town. Uh, get signed up for one. And if you're listening to this late, hey, they're going to be on archive forever. So go there and check those out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. 
Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.